Welcome to the Bayside Sermon Series Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Duckworth. This week, Pastor Dave Ritter and I discuss the Gospel of John and Jesus, the Son of Man. Dave discusses that the term Son of Man is more than just someone who can relate to us, but he is our eternal judge, but also our advocate and the one who's already paid the price for our sins. Thank you for joining us in our conversation today. All right, this week in the podcast, we jumped ahead to the Gospel of John, discussing that Jesus is the Son of Man. So same question as last week, Pastor Dave. When did John write the book, and who was his intended audience? I don't know that there's any particular audience that John is writing to, um, and, but it's generally regarded that John is one of, is probably the latest of the Gospels, and is written from the unique perspective of John, the Apostle, one of Jesus' inner circle of three, and maybe even the guy who is closest of all to Jesus because he describes himself as the disciple Jesus loved. So you're getting, you're getting from John a very, very personal account of of the story of Jesus and and one that reflects his his unique perspective whereas Matthew Mark and Luke all seem to kind of be interdependent you find parts of Mark in both Luke and Matthew and they seem to borrow back and forth um, there's there's that's why they're called the synoptic gospels right uh, but John stands apart from them because he tells the story a very different way and, and a way that reflects his unique relationship with Jesus. Right. Some of those different points that Jesus makes to in that relationship was um, Jesus on the cross puts his mother into John's care. Says, "Woman, this is your son. This is you know this is now your mother." Uh, and then uh, after the resurrection, he he tells Peter, "It's none of your business when John's going to die." Yeah, which led some people to think that, that John wouldn't die before the Lord's return, uh, but uh, that's not necessarily the case. He was just saying, uh, as as compared to Peter, who would die a martyr's death, um, John John was going to live a different kind of life, and it would end a different way. Uh, yeah, and and that was not something that Peter needed to concern himself about. Right. So it's thought to be that John was the last original apostle to die. And he ended up on the Isle of Patmos. He received what we called the Book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And I can't help but think that Patmos is basically the equivalent of what uh, England thought of Australia. Yeah, it's kind of like Alcatraz, you know. It's an island uh, just, you know, instead of putting him to death, they exiled him. Uh, they tried to eliminate his influence that way. Uh, so, yeah, it's, a, it's basically a, a rock out in the middle of the Mediterranean. Good place to be met by the Lord at, yeah. at the end where no one has to bother him. Yeah. All right, so the bulk of our text today came from John chapter 5. And I think of the Gospel of John as one of the most quoted books in the Bible. Uh, John 1 through 3, uh, John 1 14, John 3 16, uh, 11 35. There's just so many memorable things that John says that that is embedded from a very early age to many Christians. Here is this, this connection that we have with, with Jesus through, through John's writing. 
Yeah, for sure. John John is very quotable. You know, obviously, John three sixteen is probably the best known Bible verse of all. Uh, John fourteen, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, there, there are numerous different places where you you have uh, you know John quoting Jesus uh, and, and in a way that uh, is very memorable for us. And, and a lot of a lot of the references that we most frequently associate with John have to do with salvation. You know, the way of salvation. So in the sermon, you talked about how Jesus defined why the Son of Man came and what it was that he was to do. So let's recap a couple of those points. Uh, You brought up Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And if if that scripture didn't give them a a little bit of a, a foretaste of why he came and why he had to die... It, it also led to that um, he came with power and authority from God the Father. Uh, Mark 2.10, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then that lines up with the prophecy that Daniel has. Uh, Daniel 7 uh, gets to the point that uh, in verse 13, the Son of Man presented himself to the ancients of days, which you said was God the Father. And then verse 14 said that, And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that should never be destroyed. And that is very much a second coming prophecy more than what the maybe the Jewish leaders were expecting as, a, as the first coming for the Messiah. Yeah, so... The puzzle about the Son of Man title is that Jesus uses it so much. Um, it's the most frequent title that Jesus uses to refer to himself. Um, and the question among scholars is, well, why that? And, um, you know, clearly it rec- it recognizes his humanity. You know, if, if Jesus is God incarnate, fully man, fully God, then Son of Man kind of leans to the the humanity side and, and his identification with us. But there's way more to it than that, because in all those references that you just cited, there are messianic overtones in all of them, right? So uh, it, it, they, there are verses that talk about the Son of Man coming and the Son of Man doing things with authority and and forgiving sin and giving his life as ransom for many and seeking and saving the lost well those are all things that that you know are associated with the work of messiah but you're right um as much as jesus is is kind of saying that uh, that's currently his work there's a part of the son of man work that seems to be reserved for the second coming and that's the prophecy of daniel 7 of the son of man coming in power to rule the nations and um, it's that aspect of, of the Son of Man that Jesus is almost certainly referring to in, in John chapter 5 when he talks about uh, uh, him being the Son of Man. Right, in verse 22 he says that the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. For the people around him hearing that, it must have been kind of jarring because they, 
Jehovah Father, that that's that's the one God. But now to hear that that God has given authority to this other person in the Godhead to judge them. Right. So it, it, that would have been a, a startling kind of statement uh, in the in the minds of Jesus' listeners. They're they're already here in John five. They're already kind of griping about who does he think he is. He's he's acting as if uh, he's the son of God. He keeps calling God his father. He he uh, makes himself equal with God. He breaks the Sabbath and thinks he can get away with it. And and so they're already kind of upset with him. And so then for him to come out with this statement about uh, you know being the son of man and the one to whom the Father has delegated all judgment. That would have been like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, now, they might not have had a hard time equating that with the Son of Man title. The question is how well thought through was their theology in terms of who was this Son of Man? And and who is Messiah really? He is a, the Son of God? Yeah, they, they would say that. Would they say he's God the Son? Uh, probably not, because they didn't have that well-defined uh, theology of the Trinity as, as we as we think of the Trinity: God the Father, God the Spirit, God the, the Son. Um, and so, in in their minds, Son of Man, yeah, that's somebody who's going to be sent by the Father. But to say that he was invested with such incredible authority that the Father would delegate all judgment in the last day to him, that was a pretty radical kind of thing for them to to get their heads around. If you're a person that paints pictures in your head, you can see him kicking around in the dust trying to look for rocks big enough to stone him with. <laughs> yeah. So from their understanding of the law, there wasn't really a basis for them to be able to pick this up. So for us, this is, this is a, a chronological bias. You know, we are privileged to live in an age with the whole Bible that we can look both forward and backward and have a better understanding of what, uh, of what God uh, means when he says things, who he is, and all those aspects. Uh, but for them, they could only really look forward. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 is a good example of this. You know, We can look back and read that the serpent's head will be crushed and connect that to messianic prophecy. But the original audience wouldn't have that understanding at that point. Yeah, theologians sometimes talk about progressive revelation, and what they mean by that is that... Uh, Everything that can be known about God is is revealed over time. It's not all revealed at once. And part of the way that it gets revealed is in mankind's experience with God. So, yeah, back in, in Genesis 1-1, you know, in the, beginning, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He said, let us make man in our image. We might look back on that and say, well, see there, let us make man in our image. Just talking about the Trinity. They... They certainly didn't have that in mind when they read that. They, they probably were more looking at, let us make man in our image as sort of a royal we, you know. Right, like the opening scenes in the book of Job. Yeah, yeah. And and so there's um, there's definitely an advantage that we have in being able to look back and and now see the more complete revelation of, of God in three persons. One God, one essence, one eternal essence in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so for us to think about God the Son, the Son of Man, being invested with all authority to judge, that maybe doesn't seem so jarring to us because 
well, he's still God. You know, it's still God doing the judging. It's a different person of the Trinity. Uh, but for the first century Jew, it would have been kind of really out of the box, and and they would have had a hard time sort of getting their heads around that. I mean, it's, it's a little jarring for us, too, because I think even us, a lot of us as Christians, when we think about the Judgment Day, we've got these, these pictures of coming before a big, big old throne with a man with, you know, white hair and, and a big old beard uh, and having to answer to, uh, to God the Father. But in reality, Jesus is saying, no, guess what? Um, all that authority to judge has been delegated to me. So there's, there's the, the interesting twist on Christmas is that this baby in the manger, um, you know, that, I mean, the wonder of God incarnate, God in human flesh, is amazing in itself. But then to think that this one is eventually going to be the one to judge the whole world and everyone in it, and that's a pretty staggering realization. So one of the things that, that kind of kicks around in my head, and while Christmas for us is a joyous time, it reminds us of Jesus and coming to earth, my thoughts stray to, was this a joyous day as in a point in eternity? You know, when God knew this 30-some-odd-year period, his son was going to be here and be treated poorly and all these things that he knew that had to happen, but that night that Jesus came, was it a, a joyous night? I, I, as a parent, I would I would have a hard time saying that yes, that that it was a joyous event, but God is God. Yeah, and I think you know from the standpoint of heaven's reaction to it all, you know, you've got the the, the angels declaring to the shepherds, you know, good news, great joy. Uh, unto you has been born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Well, that that looks past a lot of what he would go through to become that Savior, yeah. uh, giving his life on the cross. But ultimately, you know, heaven seems to take the long view of things, right? Right. And, and so uh, rather than looking at the agony of the next 30-some years and what Jesus would have to go through living his life as a man and being humbled and 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 suffering to the point of death on a cross, the angels are reflecting on this is the moment when when the whole grand plan for the ages apparently has been launched. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's probably a moment that the angels themselves wondered if and when it would ever happen. And now they've been clued in who this baby is that's being born, and they've been given the task of announcing it. So when they say, glory to God in the highest, that... That's no question is an expression of celebration and joy. It's basically saying God deserves to be praised right up to the very rafters of heaven. And, and you look at the, the response of the, the uh, shepherds, too. You know, it talks about how they went away rejoicing for everything they saw was just as they'd been told. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a definite element of rejoicing that takes place there. Um, you know, I think back to when I was a kid and when, when, you know, we were trying to get to the moon for the first time. And we had lived in anticipation of this for so long, the, the Mercury Project, Gemini, and then finally Apollo. And you had some of the tragedies of the Apollo 8 um, astronauts burning to death. And, 
And, uh, you know, you had the scare of Apollo 13 yet to come, but uh, Apollo 11, you know, and and uh, the, the, the moment that that rocket was launched, you know, I mean, there was there was like euphoria around the globe, right? Um, we, we didn't know what lay ahead for those astronauts, but it was like, finally, we're here. The, the, the project has been launched and, and, you know, the hope of finally arriving on the moon. And I think that's the kind of anticipation that the, uh, the uh, angels are, are expressing that night. We don't, know the, we don't know the whole outcome of this. We don't know everything he's going to go through. All we know is that he's the savior, and he's been born, and and this thing is underway, and I think that's what they're that's uh, that's what they're reflecting. Let's look at the conclusion for the the sermon this week. One day we'll all stand before Jesus, the Son of Man, the one whom God the Father has given all judgment. Uh, so this is an inescapable future for all of us, whether we believe in Jesus or not. He pointed to John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he is not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is one of those statements that either should bring us great comfort, great, great joy, or should instill a sense of fear and reverence for who Jesus is. Yeah, no question. And, and that's really kind of the... Um sort of the tension point of the sermon is in the revelation of the fact that this one who came to be the son of man and this one who is coming again one day to exercise dominion over all the earth and as it says in in John 5:27 he's been given authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man the part of part of the job description of the son of man is not only to exercise dominion over the earth but to uh, to judge everyone um, as part of exercising dominion, that's, that's not something we commonly think about when we think about Christmas. And it was kind of a surprise to me when, when um, you know, I took the assignment between Ken and I, we, we chopped this up and we said, okay, Dave, you do Son of Man. And I'm thinking, yeah, cool, uh, Son of Man identifies with, with us in our humanness. And then I start digging into it more and find out, whoa, Son of man means he's the judge. He's, he's the judge of every one of us. And then you start looking at some of the other passages where Jesus talks about the Son of Man, and he, and he, he talks about how, uh, you know, the Son of Man is, is, is uh, well, this is Matthew 25, when he comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he's going to sit on his throne, and then the nations are going to be gathered, and he's going to separate people, one from the other, as the shepherd separates sheep from goats, and the sheep go on his right, and and they're told, come you who are blessed by my father and inherit the kingdom, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then the goats go to the left and they're told, depart from me, you cursed, and to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And so that's that's pretty serious stuff, right? So am I a sheep or am I a goat, you know? And Jesus, Jesus himself kind of answers the question in John 5, a few verses earlier in verse 24, where he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And so, um, you know, at the heart of all this is where you stand in terms of your belief in Jesus. Uh, you don't believe, you're condemned already. Uh, believe in him, and 
you'll have eternal life. Um, you know, in the parable of the of the sheep and goats, I didn't get into this on Sunday, but there's this interesting thing that happens where he says um, to the sheep, um, you know, you um, you took care of me when I was sick, and and you you uh, you know fed me when I was hungry, and they said, well, when did we ever see you hungry or sick? And he said, whenever you did it to the least of these, my brothers. And and then he says to the goats, you didn't care for me when I was sick. You didn't feed me when I was hungry. Well, when did we not do that? Well, when you didn't care for the least of my brothers. So there's, it almost seems like there's a works element there, but I think you've got to see all of that in the context of, of the priority of belief, that those who are on the right are those who have believed. They don't come into judgment. They have eternal life. They have a life of Christ, which results in the good works, I think, that Jesus is talking about in Matthew, of you know caring for the sick and feeding the hungry and so forth. Where those on his left are those who have not believed, who are still in their sin, they, they are condemned already, and not surprisingly, they're the ones who don't care for the sick and feed the hungry. Um, the, 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 you know, kind of by their fruit you will know them, right. uh, sort of thing. Um, but yeah, so it, it could be very, very scary to think of Jesus, the Son of Man, being my judge. But what I tried to bring out at the end of the sermon was, now in reality, this is good news. Right. Uh, really good news. Firstly, because no one's more qualified to judge us than Jesus. Uh, you know, here, here's one who is God in human flesh. So he's got the mind of God to be able to discern perfectly, right, between sheep and goats. He's not going to make any mistakes because he's God. But he's also compassionate because he's experienced life in the flesh as we've known it. He was tempted, tested in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. He's walked where we walked. He's he's experienced hunger and thirst and uh, tiredness and rejection and people who do really nasty stuff to him. So who better to judge us than somebody who's walked in our shoes? And I wonder if that isn't why God the Father delegates all authority to him, because if we were to stand before God the Father, we could complain, who are you to judge us? You don't know what it's like to be us. You've never walked in our shoes, you know? And the example I, I used was, was, you know, if you stole a loaf of bread and you had to go to stand before a judge and, and answer for that, who would you rather stand before? A, a rich guy who'd never experienced a day of hunger? Or somebody who grew up poor and knows what it's like to, to go to bed hungry. So you're, you're sure to get a fair trial right. uh, with Jesus as your judge. You might not like the verdict, but at least you know you're going to get a fair trial. Yeah. yeah. I, growing up out in the country, it, it was very interesting to see sheep and goats interact and, 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 and intermingle with, with the flocks. And... I did have to do a little bit of research to what is the difference between them. And it's interesting because while they look a lot alike and from a distance, it is hard to tell um, genetically, they're not even of the same animal family. Mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 somewhere down along the line in the animal kingdom, they are of two totally different households. Mm -hmm. So it, it's something that you need someone with more wisdom than just the, 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 regular sta uh, bystander yep. to be able to tell what is a which one is a goat and which one is a sheep. Yep, yep. 
And then, you know, the other the other reason why it's such good news that Jesus is is the judge before whom we'll all one day stand is because he offers us a plea bargain no other no other judge could offer, right? right. Um, you know, we talked about how frequent plea bargains are in our judicial system up to 90, 90 to 95% of all state and federal cases are handled by plea bargains. Plea bargains are oftentimes where a prosecutor will say, look, if you'll plead guilty to this charge, then we'll recommend a lighter sentence as a result. And uh, and I use that terminology because that's not all that different from what Jesus has done for us in giving his life as a ransom for us on the cross, paying the penalty of our sin. And and then before we ever get to that that divine courtroom, that day of judgment, he says to us, look, you're guilty. You know it. I know you're guilty. So just admit you're guilty. Just come to me and, and admit that you have sinned and trust in me. When I offer you in place of your guilt and the judgment you deserve for it, I offer you an opportunity to be forgiven and to be saved. Um, and I'll pay the penalty for you. I've already, I've already paid it. Uh, and so uh, the amazing thing is to think that on, on the day of judgment, when so many people will come before the judge shaking in their boots, mm-hmm. we can come before a judge who's already died in our place and, and by faith know that we're not going to experience judgment. That, that life awaits us instead. Right. We've talked about the propitiation before, and, and that is one of those big fancy words that just means that Jesus has taken our place on the chopping block, uh, and, and he has paid the price. Right. That's wonderful news. That's yeah, terrific news. Yep, so that's, you know, that's kind of where the sermon ended up with sort of this this hopeful note of you don't you don't have to worry on that day um, you know John at the end of first John says I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life and and that's that's I think one of the most amazing things about Christmas and and what it all means what it means for Jesus not just to be the Son of God, but to be the Son of Man, to realize that, yeah, he's our judge, but he's someone who gets us, and he's someone who loves us, so much so that he was willing to give his own life to pay for the sin that that we should have paid for. Um, so that judgment day is not something that as believers we need to fear. Uh, right. The judge has already, already paid for the, the price for our sins. Yeah, and so often we find people who who fear what comes next. Well, you know, after we pass, what's going to happen? And we should take great comfort in knowing that God loves us. He sent Jesus to die for us, and He has covered all of our debts. It's it's not on us. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is that uh, when a lot of people think about Judgment Day, uh, they're thinking that, well, I I've got a good case to make for myself, right? I've been a good person. I've tried real hard to live a good life. I've gone to church. I've given money to the poor. I've done this. I've done that. Uh, put the good in my life in, in the balance and the bad the life, my life on the other side of the balance. The good's not going to weigh the bad or I'm much better than most people. Surely God's going to let me into heaven. But all of that misses the point. 
Right. And that is that no matter how hard you've tried or how good you've been, we're all sinners. We've right. all we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve the death penalty. And and so so basically, uh, you know, the point is, don't try to justify yourself. Don't don't try to pull it over on God. Uh, none of that's going to work. Just admit you're guilty. Uh, admit admit that I'm a sinner who deserves judgment, but I cast myself on the mercy of this amazing judge who who loves me so much that he gave his life for me. And uh, Mercy is not something we earn nor deserve. Right. That's exactly right. All right. So next week, uh, we're going to go back to the book of Luke. Uh, Pastor Ken is feeling better, and so he's going to close up our Advent series with Jesus, the Son of Mary. Thank you very much, Pastor Dave. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you for joining us on our conversation today with Pastor Dave. Next week, Pastor Ken will finish up the sermon series with the book of Luke and Jesus, the Son of Mary. After that, we're going to take a week off for Christmas, but we will be back with the podcast for the January 1st sermon. We will again be returning to the book of Daniel. Thank you again for joining us and have a blessed week.